Good to see you all. Can I um, have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans? And I just blew my opening statement. I'll read it anyways. We have begun a study in what is considered by many to be the greatest book in the Bible. The Bible being the greatest book in human history. And Romans, I believe, is the greatest book in the Bible. Now, we can all differ, but if God said to me, Phil, you could have your pick of any book in the Bible, but you can only have one, I would take Romans. I think it's the closest thing to a systematic presentation of Christian doctrine and duty that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. Now, of course, we thank God we have the whole Bible, but uh, Romans is that special as far as I'm concerned. And as we said last time, many Christians shy away from studying this book because, I, I don't know, I guess they feel it's too deep for them and that they're not smart enough to really understand it and therefore get anything of value out of it. That's the devil, no doubt about it. Uh, while it's true, though, that the most brilliant theologians, I, I don't think, have ever fully uh, plumb the depths of this book, that doesn't mean that we have to approach it in that way like scholars. Uh, let the scholars study like scholars. And let's just let the average folks like us just get into the Word on our level. The one thing about the Bible, uh, it's a miracle. Um, children can read it and interact with its truths on their level, yet the greatest intellects that have ever lived have studied it all their lives, read it, studied it, meditated on it, and haven't really fully exhausted uh, its resources and its, and its beauty. So, but, but they interact with the Bible on their level. Kids interact with it on their level. I mean, think of another book where, you know, you have scholars, professors. Pick a book out of college, you know, uh, physics or whatever. Certain people can interact with the truth in that book because uh, they're smart. You tell me a fifth grader or a, or a third grader is going to be able to read that and interact with it? Of course not. Yet they can read the Bible and interact with it on their level. And yet we have people that are brilliant theologians that can interact with it and do every day uh, on a level that most of us can't even understand. It's a miracle book. Now, I'd like to keep our study in Romans somewhere in the middle. Uh, I don't want it to be you know, simplistic, but I don't want it to be so heady. And, and you don't have to worry about that, because to make it very heady, you have to be heady. And that, that's not me, all right? So you're on good ground there. Um, but we want to keep it somewhere in the middle, um, practical. And, uh, you know, when I first got saved, I was introduced to a commentary series. I never bought it because it was multi-volumes and very expensive in those days before computers. and um, But I did leave through it. And honestly, there wasn't anything in that commentary. And that was multi multiple volumes. The Cadillac of commentaries, the, the owner of this Christian bookstore said. I leafed through that thing, and it was so, it was so intellectual. It was so far above me, I thought... I don't even know how people can read this and get anything out of it. I, so I gravitate to the to more simple things, and I want to keep our study in Romans along those lines. 
But as we said last time, the theme of the book of Romans, some believe it's justification by faith. Others say, well, it's the righteousness of God. Um, still others say that Paul gives it to us right in verse 1, the gospel of God. And I think all those are valid. They come at it from just slightly different perspectives. Uh, but I'll, let's just put it simply uh, for our purposes. The book of Romans answers the question, how can a guilty sinner be made just in the eyes of a holy, righteous God and get to heaven? Last week we made it even simpler. Simpler, you know. Uh, how does a person get to heaven? Well, I want to add a little more because the idea is, how does a guilty sinner find favor in the eyes of a righteous God, so that God lets them into heaven? When the Bible says that God is of pure eyes, than to behold evil. So, how can we, being evil, have fellowship in heaven with a holy God? That really is the the dilemma of the ages although many don't realize it okay and that's what paul tackles in this book uh, now last time we said paul didn't establish the church at rome uh, just who did remains a mystery uh, and so paul finds himself writing to a church he didn't start and had not yet visited so he spends the first 17 verses introducing himself to them so let's read verse one we, we looked at this last week, but let's just look at it again real quick. Paul, a bondservant, actually the Greek is bond slave, but Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. And so Paul introduces himself uh, to the Christians that are living in Rome, the Christian church there. He tells them in verse 1 that he is a bond slave of Jesus Christ. We said last week that means a free man who voluntarily becomes the slave of another. And Jesus Christ, of course, is the master. He said that he was called to be an apostle. We know from the book of Acts, Jesus himself called Paul to be an apostle. The word apostle means once sent forth with a commission. And then finally in verse 1 he says that he has been separated to the gospel of God. Now, as you all know, gospel means good news. But then Paul quickly adds, of God. The gospel is the good news of God or from God. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion. Euangelion was a common term used for the announcement of any good news, but especially if it pertained to the emperor. And so if a new son was born to the emperor, heralds would be dispatched uh, throughout the empire announcing the good news. If the Romans army won a decisive battle somewhere in the world and the word came back, they would send out the heralds announcing good news. Rome has done it again. Our army has defeated these folks over here or over there. Now, that was a common thing back then. It was as common back then in those days as we'll say Twitter or uh, or Facebook or something is today that we use as a platform to disseminate information and receive it. Obviously, that was way before the technology was available. So they had physical heralds, uh, men that would go out and be dispatched to the entire uh, the empire, pronouncing whatever good news there was that benefited Rome or the emperor had a new son and so on. Now, Paul picked up on that and uh, using that idea, because 
uh, people were familiar with this idea of, of heralds going out and announcing good news, so Paul picked up on it. He was very good at this. Any preacher that's worth his or her salt will adapt to the environment, to, not in a sinful way, of course, but, but utilize uh, various things to connect with people. Jesus did it all the time. Um, a lot of the folks he ministered to were farmers. So he would use farming analogies, parables that used farming uh, or agricultural themes. Uh, you want to meet people on their level and then slowly elevate their thinking to a place of spiritual importance because that's what we're, all, we're doing. We want to bring them the gospel. So Paul connected with the culture and he basically says, look, I've got good news, but not from the emperor. I've got good news from God himself. Here it is. And he launches into it. Now, God, guys, the gospel of God is really the whole theme of the book of Romans. You, I thought you said it was justification by faith or the righteousness of God. Well, of course. But those are what the gospel presents. So in verse 1, you know, Paul says that I've been separated under the gospel of God. Remember, he was a Pharisee at one time. The word Pharisee means separated one. At one time, he was separated under Judaism. Now, as a saved person, he has been separated by God under the gospel of God, the good news of God, right? Uh, Judaism didn't present such good news. <laughs> a lot of laws, a lot of condemnation if you didn't keep those laws. Uh, you know, Jesus said, you know, um, if, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest from all these religious works and rules and laws. Just come to me. As we would go on to, to find out, salvation is in Jesus, right? In Jesus. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Guys, what makes the gospel such good news, and this offends people. I'm not saying anybody in this room, but wow. Uh, you go to a lot of churches and present this, and they're going to be furious at you. But what makes the gospel good news is because we, fallen mankind, are such bad people. And yet man refuses to acknowledge his own depravity, even when it rears its ugly head to prove itself, choosing rather to hold on to what many believe to be the innate goodness of man, instead of coming to terms with and admitting what the Bible says about the innate or the inherent evil of fallen man. Let me illustrate. Last time we started to study the book of Romans was back in April of 1999. It was just a week or two after the Columbine High School shooting. Many of you remember that. Uh, two 12th grade students did the shooting. Their names were Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. Uh, they murdered 12 students and one teacher on that day, injuring 23 others before killing themselves. After the shooting, one of the students in Littleton, Colorado, where the high school uh, is located, who knew the two shooters, they were her friends. And she said this as she was interviewed, she said this about her friends. She said, and I quote, my friends were good people who made bad choices, end quote. Really? Good people, gunned down, what, 13 innocent people and severely wound 23 others before killing themselves? But guys, that's how the world chooses to look at itself self oftentimes in the face of its own evil actions. The mentality of the world in situations like that, when, when man's depravity and evil really rears its ugly head, 
People can't deal with it. They can't often call it what it is. They've got to somehow skirt the issue. issue. They, they have to somehow soften it. Because if they really come out strong against what they're seeing about being connected to the depravity of fallen man, it indicts them. And they don't want to be indicted. I mean, if they blame others for being evil at, at their core, well then... That must mean that I'm evil at my core. That doesn't pertain to me. I'm a good person, they will say. But the world thinks like that, you know. Uh, people may make some mistakes at times and do some bad things, but they're basically good people inside. And in fact, so many people feel this way that they can't understand why God lets bad things happen to good people such as they. Many have concluded that God must not exist because if he was real, well, he would be a good and loving God and a good and loving God wouldn't let all these bad things happen to good people like us. So he can't be real. This mentality has turned a lot of people atheist. You know, Rabbi Harold Kushner, in his best-selling book on the topic entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People, he takes a slightly different approach and answers that question by saying, well, God does exist, and he's basically a good God. But when bad things happen to good people, it's because God's not strong enough to keep them from happening. You see, Rabbi Kushner, along with many others, but Rabbi Kushner built the whole premise of his book on a faulty assumption, that there are good people in the world for bad things to happen to. Apparently, he didn't read what Paul, another rabbi, I believe the greatest rabbi in Israel's history, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. Here's what he said in Romans 3, which we'll get to in a few years. He said, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding, that's true. Uh, but listen, to Romans 3, you're in the neighborhood, right? Uh, verses 10 to 12. Here's what Paul said. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all, just have a fallen man. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does, does good, no, not one. Guys, if more people realized and accepted what God says, about fallen mankind and not what we think of ourselves because Jeremiah 17, 9, the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. If more people would look at what God says in his word about who we are, they'd be a lot more inclined to realize just how good God's good news really is. I mean, Jesus said, remember, the healthy don't seek out a doctor but those who realize they're sick. Now, in the context that Jesus spoke that, he was being accused of hanging out with sinners. He was being accused of that by all the quote-unquote righteous people in Israel, the Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, and so on. And Jesus said, look, the well don't need a physician, the healthy, it's only the sickly. And in fact, the sickly will seek out a doctor when a well person won't. Now, by saying that, he wasn't saying he was speaking spiritually. But he wasn't saying there were spiritually healthy people in Israel that didn't need him 
as the great physician because they were already righteous. Again, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, and so on. No, he was saying there are people who are so self-righteous. They think that they are right with God. They think they don't have anything to repent for. They are the epitome of goodness and virtue in a, in a society of all these uh, wicked sinners, right? See, Jesus couldn't help them because they didn't realize that they needed his righteousness. They thought they were already right with God because they kept the law. Uh, they're the only ones who really did. They're fine with God. God, God and us, we're, we're tight, they would say. But Jesus knew better. He knew that they were just as sick, sinfully speaking, as anyone else. But the problem is until a person understands their sinfulness, they won't see God as Savior. And that's the idea. Tax collectors, prostitutes, others like that who were living sinful lives, they knew they were sinners. And when they heard Jesus loved them and was offering forgiveness to them, they flocked to him. That irritated the self-righteous religious leaders of Israel who thought they didn't need Jesus at all. So you have to tell people the bad news. And in response to the bad news, once again, people often say, but I'm a good person. You can't be talking about me. I know I'm a good person. Now, Whenever somebody says that to me, I always respond, but not in a bad way. I don't get in their face. But I, I always respond in a gentle way, well, who told you you were a good person? God didn't tell you that. Jesus said there are none good but God. And when you study what the Bible says about goodness, it is only connected to God because it is moral perfection and only God is morally perfect a lot of people don't realize that they think that they're not perfect but I'm good enough I think they get in hell I haven't robbed any banks lately I've never I haven't killed anyone uh, sure I look at the gals that work with lust but I've never actually done anything about it they think they're okay with God they don't realize that one sin will keep you out of heaven. Read James 2.10. You keep the law in every way, but you break one law, you're a sinner, you're a lawbreaker. And even if you could live a perfect life morally, which is impossible, but just say you could, you were still born with original sin, so you were done before you started. Right? People don't realize that. They think that when they stand before God on the day of judgment, he's going to take all their good deeds and put it on one side of the scale, all their uh, bad deeds on the other side, and if the good just tips a little bit in their favor, they're in. They don't realize what's involved in the kind of righteousness that God accepts from the, up into heaven, the righteousness of Christ, sinless perfection. How is that possible? Nobody's perfect. Christ was and when I give my heart to him and I put my faith in him, I'm placed in Christ. And we'll get to that in detail as we go on in our study. But that's, what, that's why Paul, in an effort to give people God's good news, first has to emphasize the bad news. 
And he does this in the very first section of Romans chapter 1, verses, uh, Romans 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, where he proves that everyone apart from Jesus Christ is guilty in the eyes of God. Everyone. That would include, and he, he takes these groups one by one. That would include the atheist as well as the moralist and even the religionist. There is no one good in God's eyes apart from Christ, not a single person as we just read in Romans 3. And that's why we've entitled that first section, again, chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, Condemnation. Because Paul wants to prove that the whole world apart from Christ is condemned. In other words, pronounced guilty by God and condemned to spend eternity in hell. And they need God's righteousness for salvation. God's righteousness. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3. He said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is what? Condemned already. The human race was pronounced guilty in the Garden of Eden when Adam blew it. So Jesus said what Paul affirmed. There are none righteous. The whole human race in Adam all died. We've all been, we're all descendants of Adam. And the only way for us to escape the judgment on the family of Adam is to change families. The only way you can do that is receive Christ as your Savior. Then you go from a member of Adam's family, ooh, scary stuff, Adam's family, you are translated into God's family. Adam's family, curses, condemnation. God's family, blessings, eternal life, and so on. You see, guys, until a person is ready to accept the bad news uh, about themselves, they're not ready to receive the good news of God. Now, I say that and I, as I was um, going over this uh, and, and, and God leading and putting things together, I wondered how many people are going to church and have been convinced by pastors or TV evangelists that all you need to do is pray a prayer and, and, and to receive Christ as your Savior and you're in. I'm wondering how many people that go to seeker-friendly churches, not that Everything that goes on there is bad. But the whole idea is to bring people into the church so we can, you know, we can, you know, get them to, to, to receive Christ without repentance, without, they, they want to keep it positive. So they tend to veer away from the talk about sin and judgment and, and hell and so on. It's basically, oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, why don't you pray with me and you're going to be saved? And they're walking around never having come to the realization of how bad they really are, how lost they really are. They just think they're going to add Jesus to their life. It's all they need. They're good already. But if I can add a little more, get Jesus, you know, frosting on the cake kind of thing, that's even better. And yet they don't realize that until they acknowledge that they are sinners. They're not, never going to really see their need for a Savior. Not like God intended 
in the book of Romans. And so in the very first sentence of Paul's opening salutation, he gives the theme of this epistle, the gospel of God. It is the gospel of God, listen, because it originates with God and is not the invention of man. When man wants to approach God, he invents religion, whereby he can earn his salvation through his good deeds and religious works. Guys, religion is man's attempts to stand on his little self-righteous tippy toes and reach up high enough to touch God. He'll never do it. He thinks he can, or she thinks she can. But the Bible says there is no way through religion you can ever reach up and touch God. So what is Christianity? It's not a religion. It's a relationship where God came down to where we were. Religion, let me try to work my way up to God. God says, never going to happen. But here, I love you so much. Let me come down. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus came down. He condescended to meet us where we were. Fallen, broken sinners, unable to get up, unable to do anything to please God because we were lost, we were, we were condemned through sin, and so on. But God so loved us that he initiated. He came down. I, I just love that about him. So the word gospel, because that's, that's the theme of the entire book, the gospel of God. The word gospel appears six times in the first 17 verses of Paul's salutation and, and introduction. Chapter 1. First 17 verses, the word gospel appears six times. And I think it's pretty obvious why. Because Paul is excited about God's good news. Remember, he lived in a pagan culture. The pagans were always trying to appease the gods. The Greeks said the gods were apatheia, which we get our word apathetic from. The gods didn't care about man. Just don't mess with them. Don't do anything to make them angry. Just try to placate them. You got to throw a virgin into a volcano once in a while, so be it. Do whatever you have to do, right? That was the pagan world. In their world, they died for their gods. Here comes Paul with a message that nobody had ever heard before in that world, that area of the world. That we have a God that died for us. Now that would get the pagans' attention. That was revolutionary. Okay, revolutionary. And Paul's excited to present this good news to a lost, pagan, broken world in darkness and so on. You might say that the first seven verses are the seed of the gospel and the next 16 chapters we'll see it grow into full bloom. But he can't wait. He can't wait 16 chapters to fully develop the gospel. He's so excited he, gives, he encapsulates the whole thing in the first seven verses. That's why we'll take a little extra time uh, on the first seven verses. But um, He just sums everything up, up front. And then he spends the rest of the book developing these ideas. Uh, so in verses 1 to 7, uh, Paul presents the good news of God encapsulated. Let's read the first two verses. So once again, Paul said, uh, it says, verse 1, Paul 
a bondservant, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. That would be our Old Testament. The gospel, guys, is not a new message. It was promised in the Old Testament beginning in Genesis 3, verse 15. Let me read it to you. Genesis 3, 15. God is speaking to the serpent, to the devil, who was able to tempt Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, and they did, and they fell. So God is pronouncing the curse. In verse 15, he is focused on the serpent, or Satan. And he says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now that was a reference to the Messiah, who would come eventually, Jesus Christ. Interesting that God said, talks about her seed. Well, the woman doesn't have the seed, the man does. Every first semester biology student knows that. The man has the seed, the woman has the egg. Theologians picked up pretty quickly on the fact that God calls it the seed of the woman, implying a virgin birth. A virgin birth. And God goes on, he shall bruise your head, devil, the Messiah. You shall bruise his heel. But theologians of the past have nicknamed Genesis 3.15 Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium, which is Latin for the first announcement of the gospel. So way back... Genesis 3.15, God announces the gospel. Spends the rest of the, the Old Testament and into the New Testament developing what that really is all about. But right away, the virgin birth, right up front, okay? Uh, we know that the prophet Isaiah, I think, certainly preached the gospel in passages such as Isaiah 1, verse 18. You can look that up on your own. Uh, I think definitely in chapters 53 and 55 of his book, Isaiah was uh, hinting at um, the gospel. As one writer put it, and I'm quoting, the salvation we enjoy today was promised by the prophets through, uh, though they did not fully understand all that they were preaching and writing, end quote. And then he uh, references 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12. We'll read those in just a second. But before we get there, let me just read verses 1 and 2 of Romans 1 again. Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, turn to Hebrews chapter 1, because I want to uh, reference this verse along with what Paul just said. And by the way, in case you're wondering, I do believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Habakkuk 2.4 says the just shall live by faith. That statement, that verse, appears three times in the New Testament. Once in Romans, once in Galatians, once in Hebrews. In fact, they become a three-volume commentary on that one all-important verse. The just shall live by faith. Romans answers the question of the just. How, does the, how is a person made just? Galatians uh, answers the question, well, once they're made just, how shall they live? Not by the works of the law. Having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? He chastens the Galatians who had bought into false teaching, chapter 3, Galatians 3. The just Romans shall live. And then Hebrews, 
by faith. And we know that Paul wrote Romans and Galatians. And for this and a lot of other reasons, we went into this in great detail. We started, we, uh, started Hebrews years ago. I spent a whole evening showing you why I believe uh, from many different you know, directions why Paul wrote Hebrews. Okay, Why didn't he put his name to it? He was persona non grata in Jewish circles, okay? And if they saw his name, it's like, you know, the, the um, companies have gotten very smart when they want to sell you something. They won't put their company's name on the letter. To whom it may concern, resident, whatever. It's not from this company that's trying to sell you this product. Because if you saw it, you'd probably throw it in the trash. They want you to open it at least. So Paul didn't want these folks to throw his letter in the trash before they even opened it. So that's why he left it anonymous, right? But the just Romans shall live Galatians by faith, Hebrews. Three-volume commentary on that one very important verse out of Habakkuk 2, verse 4. But I want you to look at what, let me read again the last part of, uh, let me read Romans 1, 2 again, then we'll go right into Hebrews 1, verse 1. But um, how God promised the, God, the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, that's Romans 1, 2. Hebrews 1, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways, spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets. You see, guys, the good news or the gospel spoken of in the New Testament is really just the fulfillment of the promises made by God through the prophets in the Old Testament. The prophets were simply spokesmen for God. In fact, anyone in the Bible who was inspired by God to speak his word on his behalf was considered a prophet. Paul said in Hebrews 1 verse 1 that God spoke through these prophets at various times. In other words, all throughout our Old Testament period. But here's a little curveball. When did the Old Testament end? And if you say Malachi, you're wrong. The Old Testament technically ended with the ministry of John the Baptist, Luke 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. And John, the last prophet of the Old Covenant, handed off the baton to Jesus, the prophet of the New Covenant. More than a prophet, but you understand. But these were spokesmen for God. God, at various times throughout the Old Testament, up to and including John the Baptist, spoke. Spoke. He says in very, at various times, but these prophets also spoke in different ways. How did they speak? Well, uh, well, God sometimes spoke uh, through an audible voice that he spoke to the prophets with. But um, God gave these prophets visions, dreams, sent angels to speak to them. And then they went out and they shared what God had said. But much of what God said through these prophets had to do with the promise of God's good news. Now you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 10 to, 10 to 12. And I'm going to read these verses to you out of the NLT. Here's what Peter said. Along the lines of much of what God said through the prophets had to do with God's promise of the good news that was coming. 
This salvation was something even the prophets, Old Testament prophets, of course, wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. So these guys were prophesying centuries before the New Covenant, um, before the gospel ever really was, uh, was brought into you know, existence in the sense where it was set in motion. Verse 11, they wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about how Christ suffering and his great glory about his uh, uh, his Christ suffering and his great glory afterward, they were told that their messages were not for themselves but for you, and now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels eagerly watching these things. Even the, uh, it's so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. What things? Well, part of the gospel is that God would live inside his people. Right? God, will, God is with angels. Angels are in God's presence. That's pretty spectacular. But as spectacular be, as beings, as, as angels are good angels, not the fallen ones. As spectacular as they are, and, 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 the, and how they have the privilege of standing in God's presence, none of them know what it's like to have God living inside of them. That's unique to the New Covenant. We talked about that Sunday, I believe. Guys, throughout the Old Testament period, God was revealing things about the gospel, but many other things, but the gospel primarily to these prophets. But as we have said many times, let me say it again, by far the greatest revelation was the incarnation. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to say in Hebrews 1. Verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers, the Jewish patriarchs, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So for centuries, God revealed himself to man in revelatory bits and pieces, what the theologians called the progressive revelation of God, the progressive revelation of God. But then John opens up his gospel with these words, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word being a title for Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as uh, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Of course, the incarnation was the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. We could spend the evening chasing them down. There were 333 prophecies in the Old Testament of Jesus' first coming. One of the most famous ones, the, the, one of the ones that the Jewish people really latched onto, you might want to turn to it, Deuteronomy 18. There were many prophecies in the Jewish scriptures about the coming Messiah. But here's the one they really clung to. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, where God said, I will raise up for them a prophet. Now, of course, the prophet is the prophet Jesus. That's who's in view here. 
I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and and uh, will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them, to my people, all that I command him. That's why Jesus would often say, I speak nothing but what my Father has told me to speak. I have come to declare his word. Because he was acting in the role of a prophet, somebody who speaks on behalf of God. He happened to be God, but he was acting in the capacity of a savior, a prophet, a redeemer, a messiah. Back to Romans 1. Again, verse 1, Paul, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, one commentator had this to say about Paul's statement here, and I'm quoting. Paul identified him, Jesus, as a man, a Jew, and the Son of God. He was born of a virgin into the family of David, which gave him the right to David's throne. That was important because he was going to be the son of David who would sit on his father David's throne in the kingdom, of course. The author goes on, he died for the sins of the world and then was raised from the dead. It, it is this miraculous event of substitutionary death and victorious resurrection that constitutes the gospel, and it was this gospel that Paul preached. When we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we mean that he is a Son of God like no one else is. God has many sons. All believers are his sons. Even angels are spoken of as sons of God, Job 1 verse 6, chapter 2 verse 1. But Jesus is God's son in a, in a unique sense. When our Lord spoke of God as his father, the Jews rightly understood him to be claiming equality with God. And he references John 5, verse 18. You can check that out later. End quote. Now, guys, here in these verses, Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, you have the foundational pillars upon which the gospel rests, and they are simply these two. The incarnation, verse 3, and the resurrection, verse 4. We've already looked at the incarnation. How about the resurrection? Well, the resurrection, as we have said before, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the world. Now, a lot of people don't see it that way. We certainly do. I think it's, it, it is, whether people realize it or not, definitely the greatest event in the history of the world. Because no other event affects eternity like Jesus' resurrection. You could point to some event here or there that maybe affected uh, a certain area of the world for a certain period of time. Great. There have been major battles that have been won, other important events that have happened, man walking on the moon, that, that's pretty important stuff. But those things don't affect eternity. And that's why we say the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the world. And listen, it is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It is so foundational to Christianity that anyone who denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be a genuine Christian. We've talked about that. 
In fact, without the resurrection, there would be no Christian faith. Now, some false teachers slipped into the church of Corinth. Doesn't surprise us because they were a very carnal church. And they were not really a church that clung to the scriptures. They were, I don't know, maybe a feely church, I don't know, motion-driven. Anyways, they weren't discerning. And some false teachers came in and began to teach them a false doc, a heresy, that the dead don't rise. Dead don't rise. There's no resurrection. And a lot of people in the church of Corinth began to buy into that. And it became a real problem, so much so that Paul fires them off a letter, and part of the letter addresses this. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Paul starts with their premise on the subject that the dead don't rise and he runs with it again he was a master of connecting with people and then trying to elevate their thinking to a place where it was truthful or whatever so he starts off in verse 14 again i'll read it to the nlt first corinthians 15 verse 14 and if christ has not been raised because you know the dead don't rise christ has not risen and if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, we got some big real problems here in River City. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Verse 20, praise God. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He, he has, or excuse me, he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died in Christ, Christians. Let me say this. We have talked about this um, before, but let me just bring it up because we're here in a section, I think, that really warrants us revisiting this subject. But all but four of the major world religions are based on philosophical and uh, ethical principles. Of the four that are based on personalities, only Christianity claims an empty tomb due to the resurrection of its founder. You know this. Abraham, the father of Judaism, died around 1900 B.C., but the Jews never claimed that Abraham rose from the dead. In the original accounts of Buddha's life and death, uh, they never claimed, his followers never claimed that Buddha rose from the dead. We know that Muhammad died on June 8, 632 A.D., at the age of 61 uh, in Medina where his tomb is to this day and where his tomb is visited every year by thousands hundreds of thousands of devout Muslims but neither the Quran nor the Hadith ever claimed that Muhammad rose from the dead only the tomb of Jesus is empty because only the tomb of Jesus because only Jesus I should say is risen Guys, Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel message. Without him, there could be no good news. He wasn't just another teacher sent from God to teach us spiritual truth, as so many skeptics believe about him. 
If Jesus was only one of many religious teachers in history, many religious teachers have come, come down through the pike of history over the centuries. And if Jesus was no different from any one of these other religious uh, teachers, then his words carry no more weight, right, than the teachings of other religious leaders like, again, Buddha, Confucius, or Muhammad. And yet Jesus never allowed himself to be lumped in with any other religious teacher. He constantly set himself apart from other religious leaders of history with statements like John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now what that tells us is that Christianity is built not on principles but on a person. I mean, look, you can remove Muhammad from Islam, Buddha from Buddhism, Confucius from Confucianism, and listen, nothing would change. Nothing would change. Because those religions aren't built on their leaders, on their teachings, yes, but not on them personally. But remove Christ from Christianity, and it ceases to exist. Because Christianity is inextricably linked to and built upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is the sinless Son of God. Only Jesus could have paid the price for our sins and rescue us from coming judgment. Look, what separates Jesus Christ from all the other religious leaders and teachers throughout history is that, listen, they were mere men claiming to have a way to God where he was God claiming to be the way. That's quite a difference, right? They claimed to have a way to God. He claimed, claimed to be the way that the only way that led to God the Father and heaven. Peter nailed it when he said in, Peter, in Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in none other, no one else. God has given, God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Only There is only salvation in Jesus' name, in him, right? And listen, guys, that's why Satan constantly tries to substitute a different Jesus for the real Savior and a different gospel for the true good news. Turn to these, okay? First of all, 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, let's read verses 3 and 4. Where Paul said, but I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you. No discernment. Even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. Paul was concerned for this church. They had no discernment. I don't know if, a, if a, a fancy orator, maybe he was wearing a expensive robe, or I don't know, $1,200 sandals. I, I don't know what they had back then. I know we got them today, you know, wearing the, what, three or $4,000 Gucci suit, these televangelists strutting back, in, you know, $1,200, $1,500 loafers. And you know what? <laughs> they always look good on TV, don't they? And people are swayed by that. You know, they always have that, that hair. Where do they get that hair from? 
their hair, I don't know, it's just something. And, you know, and they've always, no doubt, whitened their teeth to the point where it's almost a little blinding. And people buy into that. I mean, this guy, how can this guy be wrong? He's got such great hair. He's got such great teeth. All the better to eat you with, my dear. He's a wolf, right? But people buy into this. I mean, it's no, nothing new today. I mean, it goes back to Paul's time. Turn to Galatians 1. And, and look at verse 6, where Paul said, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. It's not from God. It's not the gospel of God. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news, supposed good news, uh, to you, then, then the good news you welcomed from us when we were there, let that person be a curse. I'll stop with this because we're out of time, but um, verse 8 intrigues me. You think the Holy Spirit, we know he anticipates. We know he doesn't anticipate. He knows what's coming in the way of false doctrine. It's interesting how he has put things in the Word that predate some of this false teaching by centuries, but he knew it was coming. Look at verse 8. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even, listen, an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. Let them be accursed. Um, you all know about Mormonism. Mormonism got started when the angel Moroni visited a man who grew up in church, uh, you know, Joseph Smith, Jr., the angel Moroni visited him, showed him um, the golden plates of Nephi, which were in some kind of weird Egyptian hieroglyphics. He couldn't make them out until the angel gave him the magic glasses, the Urim and the Thummim. When he put them on, he could understand, he could read and understand. And those tablets, those golden plates, became what we know today as the Book of Mormon. So... An angel, supposedly from heaven, it was a demon from hell, but an angel masquer a, a demon masquerading as an angel, right? Um, a being of light approached Joseph Smith and said to him, look, all the other Christian religions have been perverted, uh, corrupted over the years. There's nothing good. The truth is not in any of them. I want you to, 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 to start a pure Christian church where the truth will be found. And then he showed him the golden plates. And that's how Mormonism basically started. I wish Joseph Smith, who grew up in church, I, I guess, would have read Galatians 1, verse 8, right? Um, he would have identified this angel as a demon and ran for the hills. If you don't know your Bible, you're going to be susceptible to error. The Corinthians were. Others like Joseph Smith have been. The truth will make you what? Free from Satan's lies. You want to be protected against the lies of the devil? Know the truth of God very well.
And that's what Paul has been giving us. And we'll pick it up uh, next week, God willing, in the section in Romans chapter 1. Father, we thank you for giving us, Lord, your truth. In a world of lies and deception, we have the truth that sets us free. Give us grace to love it, to feed voraciously on it, that, Lord, we would be guarded against the, the lies of the devil because we embrace, we feed on the truth of our God in his word. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in this incredible book. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.